Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. This is Abdul Nasser Jangda. If you enjoy and benefit from listening to our podcast, please donate to Qalam by visiting supportqalam.com. We love being able to share this content for free with you and your donation ensures that we are always able to do so. Each podcast we produce has tens of thousands of listeners. So the opportunity for gaining immense reward by supporting this effort is endless, inshallah. You never know who will be able to benefit from your contributions and donations. Jazakumullahu khairan. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wassalamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Inshallah, concluding our study of the life of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, Asirat al-Nabawiyya, the prophetic biography. Today's session, inshallah, is going to be the last in the series uh, on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. The logical conclusion of the seerah, the study of the seerah that I personally just saw. We, of course, uh, not in the previous session, but the one before that, we covered al-wafat. We covered the passing of the Prophet And while that might seem like a logical conclusion, as I mentioned previously as well, many of the scholars in the books of the seerah usually have at least uh, two more entries after al-wafat. The two things that are usually mentioned after the passing of the Prophet ﷺ as part of the logical conclusion is, uh, the first thing is that succession. Because the very first thing that was done by the companions of the Prophet ﷺ in the aftermath of the passing of the Prophet ﷺ was the appointing of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu um, as the leader of the Muslims, as Khalifa to Rasulullah, as the successor of the Messenger of God and the leader of the Muslims and the believers. The second thing that is usually mentioned in the, again, the aftermath of the passing of the Prophet ﷺ then, is the actual um, laying to rest of the body of the Messenger of God wasallam. Now I say that with a lot of um, precaution. Uh, and I wanted to talk about that just very briefly. Uh, I say that with a lot of precaution, the way I phrase it, laying, the re- laying to rest the body of the Messenger ﷺ, because not only out of respect and out of reverence of the Prophet ﷺ, but secondly, something I'm not going to get into a lot of detail here, um, deliberately, because it's not so much a subject that is studied as a part of the seerah, as a part of the prophetic biography. Rather, it is a subject that is studied when discussing some of the issues of aqidah, or Islamic theology. And that is simply the issue that there is a lot of discussion about what exactly is the nature of the afterlife of prophets. So very quickly, just to kind of allude to what some of the conversation is, so everyone understands kind of my sense of precaution. Number one is that there's a discussion obviously about the souls and the afterlife of the prophets of God. So as we read in the Quran about shuhada, the martyrs, 
right? Uh, that do not say about those who were uh, killed in the path of God, in the line of fire, defending the religion of God, that they are dead. Rather, they are alive. And we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honors them with a type of life and sustenance in the afterlife. Secondly, however, there, is also, there are also authentic narrations from the Prophet ﷺ in the Sahih of Imam Bukhari and the Sahih of Imam Muslim, along with the other authentic collections of Hadith and Sunnah, that the Prophet ﷺ speaks about this, إِنَّ اللَّهَ حَرَّمَ أَجْسَادَ الْأَنْبِيَاءِ عَلَى الْأَرْضِ That God forbade the bodies of the Prophets upon the earth. Meaning that the earth was commanded by God not to eat away uh, at the bodies of prophets. And therefore, you know, as far as we know, we can presume that their bodies are also protected by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Thirdly, there is a narration about the Prophet ﷺ referencing that on the night of Al-Isra wal-Mi'raj, when he was traveling um, that journey, that distance, that at one point in time he was able to see down into the grave of Musa ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ says that he was praying in his grave. Now, Wallahu ta'ala alim exactly what that means and what that implies, but there's a lot of discussion around that. Suffice it to say, that this is a subject that we are best discussing more cautiously and carefully. There have been moments, unfortunately and tragically, within Islamic history where polemics have dominated the conversation and people have taken on, have engaged in debates and got, taken a debate to a very inappropriate level where they challenge one another and they debate one another and they discuss the Prophet ﷺ um, in his grave and so on and so forth. My, very, my personal viewpoint is that the entire afterlife is a mystery. The entire afterlife is a mystery. Um, what we, there are certain things we know that there is an afterlife, we believe in that. So what we know, we believe in that. The exact details of it, the nature of it, it's completely a mystery to us. So we are better off not talking about and not discussing things that we have absolutely no certain knowledge in regards to, particularly when it comes to the subject of our beloved Messenger wasallam, the beloved of God. Then caution and precaution is the best course. So that's, I just wanted to kind of explain that um, why I phrase it the way that I do. Nevertheless, as we had talked about the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he passed away Monday morning, late Monday morning. We talked about how after the initial part of Monday, the Prophet's, uh, the, the, the companions were dealing with and reeling from the passing of the Prophet وسلم, the greatest tragedy that ever befell anyone. Shortly thereafter, that Monday evening, the conversation occurred about the leadership of the Muslim Ummah going forward. Because they needed to make sure that there was not, that a gap was not created and a vacuum was not left that would leave the Ummah exposed. 
and that would start that that could create a crisis within the community a crisis of confidence within the community so monday evening is when the initial appointment of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu took place as the leader of the Muslims in, uh, and as a successor of the Messenger sallallahu This continued on into Tuesday. And most of the morning and the daytime of Tuesday, the early part of Tuesday, was spent similarly with people assembling, gathering, in, in the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ, giving the oath of allegiance to Abu Bakr as a leader of the Muslims. That further then resulted in Abu Bakr around the time of Dhuhr, publicly addressing the entire ummah and essentially giving what was the inaugural address of his khilafah. After that, everyone now turned their attention to now let's make sure that we are able to fulfill the final rites of the Messenger A lot of times what is referred to as the funeral rites, the janazah of the Messenger When we talk about the final rites of anyone, particularly the Messenger the very first thing that needs to be taken care of is the washing of the body. The washing of the body is the very first thing that is done. So on the day of Tuesday, later on the day of Tuesday, that is when they began this entire procedure. There are a number of different narrations. One of the narrations in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad, and it's also mentioned in some of the other books of Hadith as well, mentions that from Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhuma, اجتمَعَ الْقَوْمُ لِغَسْلِ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمَ وَلَيْسَ فِي الْبَيْتِ إِلَّا أَهْلُهُ That the people gathered together for the washing of the body of the Prophet And in the home, in the home where they were going to wash the body, the home of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, there was nobody in there except for family. عَمُّهُ الْعَبَّاسُ بْنُ عَبْدِ الْمُطَّلِبِ First and foremost, of course, it was the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, Abbas, Ali ibn Abi Talib, the cousin and the son-in-law of the Prophet ﷺ, Ali, Al-Fadl ibn Abbas, you had the um, older son of Abbas, the cousin of the Prophet ﷺ, Al-Fadl. You had Qutham ibn Al-Abbas, one of the other sons of Abbas, Usama ibn Zayd ibn Haritha. Which is very, very touching. Usama, who we've talked about previously, but just a quick refresher, is the son of Umm Ayman, who was, when the Prophet ﷺ was young, was the nanny of the Prophet ﷺ. She looked after him, and the Prophet ﷺ would refer to her as a mother. And his father, Zayd ibn Haritha, who was Shaheed at this point, he had died as a martyr in the Battle of Mu'ta. He was like an adopted son to the Prophet So because of that, Usama was very beloved to the Prophet and was often referred to by the other companions as Hibbu Rasulillah, the beloved of the Messenger of God. And so recognizing how beloved he was to the Prophet he was included within this family affair. And then another individual that was also included within the group was Salih. Mawla Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. 
one of the freed slaves of the Prophet ﷺ, who had served the Prophet ﷺ towards the end of his life, was also included within the group. And this showed basically what the legacy of the Prophet ﷺ was. That the Prophet's family was a lot bigger than tribe or blood. And that these people and their relationship to the Prophet was recognized and validated. In this now procedure of washing the body of the Prophet, Adil ibn Abbas says, Whenever the body of the deceased is usually washed, the aura, which is basically for men between uh, the navel and the knee, that is the private area of a man's body that must remain covered. The typical procedure is that that area of the body remains covered. That area of the body remains covered. You leave a cloth over that area of the body. And then the shirt the legs are open, the arms, the shoulders, the leg, the shirt, the chest, that is open, that is uncovered. And then the body is washed. And as far as that more, I guess we can refer to it as kind of the private region of the body between the navel and the knee for a man, that a cloth is kept on top of that and basically the, the water is poured and either from on top of the cloth Lightly it is washed or cleaned. Or in some cases, you wrap a cloth around the hand or you put a glove on and then you're able to wash the body. For the Prophet ﷺ, they went an extra step. They went an extra step. The Prophet ﷺ had a qamis. He had a long shirt. They kept that shirt on the Prophet ﷺ. They did not remove his shirt that was long, that went down below his knees to basically mid-calf or mid-shin. And they left the shirt on the Prophet out of respect and out of reverence for the Prophet So it mentions that, فَأَسْنَدَهُ عَلِيٌّ إِلَى صَدْرِهِ Ali radiallahu ta'ala went behind and sat behind the Prophet They lifted his body up and he leaned him against his chest. And they left the qameez on. وَكَانَ الْعَبَّاسِ وَفَضَلُ وَقُثَمْ يُقَلِّبُونَهُ مَعَا And the three individuals, Abbas, Fadal, and Qutham, the two sons of Abbas, so Abbas and his two sons, they basically were helping Ali radiallahu ta'ala handle the body and were lightly, gently rubbing the body to clean it from on top of the shirt, out of respect. وَكَانَ أُسَامَةُ بْنُ زَيْدِ وَصَالِحَ مَوْلَاهُمَا يُصَبَّانِ الْمَا And Usama and Salih رضي الله تعالى عنهما They were pouring the water while Ali was holding his body and the three of them gently, lightly rubbed the body from on top of the shirt to cleanse him. وَجَعَلَ عَلِي يَغْسِلُهُ and Ali radiallahu ta'ala similarly was rubbing the back, cleaning the back while they continued to pour the water. Because again, even if you're wearing a shirt, you pour enough water, the water gets through and you're able to still cleanse. And again, also keeping in mind, we're talking about the Prophet the Prophet purity, right? There, there, there's not the idea of filthiness with the Prophet number one. 
right? Remember all the narrations. Umm Salama radiallahu ta'ala anha says that when I went to go see the body of the Prophet after he passed and I touched his chest, the scent that was that stuck to my hand, she said, weeks passed. Weeks passed and the scent would not leave my hand. Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha says the fragrance I smelled on that day, I never smelled anything like that ever again. And the clothes, remember I had mentioned this, the garments the Prophet was wearing when he passed away, when people came years later, there's an occasion where some of the tabi'un say years later, some of the sahaba, excuse me, they say years later we came to visit Ummuna Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, and we were visiting her and we just told her, please tell us about the passing of the Prophet And she told us and then she said, wait a minute. And she went inside the apartment, her home, and she came back out with two garments. And she said, this is what the Prophet was wearing when he passed away. And she, they say, when she came out with those garments, we could smell the fragrance. So we're talking about the Prophet But even in the case of ordinary people, the washing of the body of the deceased is a ritual. Is a ritual. Again, of course, we want to remove impurities, but the idea is not like a like a bath or a shower that the living take. It's primarily a ritual, right? So even just a gentle cleansing from on top of the cloth was sufficient. And it goes, Abdullah bin Abbas goes on to say, "Walam yara min Rasulillahi And even the part of the body of a mayit that is normally uncovered like the chest and the stomach and things like that, was not seen of the Prophet ﷺ, was not uncovered, again, out of respect for him. And Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala anhu became overcome with emotion, and he said, Bi Abi wa ummi, I would sacrifice everything for you. Ma atyabaka, how fragrant and how beautiful you are, hayyan wa mayyitan, in life and even in death. Hatta ida farahu min ghasli Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, then they completed the washing of the body of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. وَكَانَ يُغَسَلْ بِالْمَاءِ They washed him with this water that leaves had been boiled into the water to add some fragrance. جَفَّفُوهُ Then then they took some like towels or dry cloth and they dried him. ثُمَّ صُنِعَ بِهِ مَا يُسْنَعُ Then they basically further continued to prepare the body of the Prophet ﷺ like a mayit normally, the deceased is readied. ثُمَّ أُدْرِجَ فِي ثَلَاثِ أَثْوَابٍ Then they took three cloths to wrap the body of the Prophet ﷺ. There were two white cloths. And then they had a long, kind of like a, almost like a blanket or a sheet that they wrapped him in. قَالَ ثُمَّ دَعَلَ عَبَّاسِ Abdullah bin Abbas says, My father then called two men. They said, Go notify Abu Ubaidah ibn al Jarrah. So, I'll get to this in just a moment. But this was the washing of the body of the Prophet. When it comes, before I move on to the next topic, when it comes to the washing of the body of the Prophet ﷺ, there's a very fascinating detail. There's a very, very fascinating detail found in two narrations. 
Number one, it's mentioned in a narration found in the Dala'il um, al-Nubu'ah of Imam al-Bayhaqi and other books of the Sunan as well, that the Prophet ﷺ, he specifically asked and instructed Ali ibn Abi Talib that he said that when I die, he said, wash my body with the water from the well of Ghars. When I pass away, He said, wash my body with the well with the water from the well of Ghars. And this well of Ghars is very fascinating. The Prophet says in another narration that He said, the best well is the well of Ghars. It is from the streams of paradise. And its water is the best of water. And Rasulullah the Prophet ﷺ, while he was alive, he used to enjoy the water of the well of Ghars. He would oftentimes go there, get the water from there, he would drink the water, make wudu with the water. And before he passed away on his deathbed, he told Ali bin Abi Talib that when you wash my body, wash it with the water from the well of Ghars. And that's very fascinating. What is the significance of the well of Ghars? Of all things, why? And where is the well of Ghars located? The well of Ghars is located on one of the farther areas of the city of Medina. And it w it's actually near where the garden was, where the, uh, the date palm trees were planted for Salman al-Farsi. The garden of Salman al-Farsi, it's near there. Al-Ghars, Bi'ru al-Ghars. What is the significance? Why did the Prophet ﷺ specifically instruct his body to be washed by the well, the water from the well of Ghars? So there's some discussion about that. Number one is that it's documented that the well of Ghars actually belonged to the Prophet. ﷺ. It belonged to the Prophet. ﷺ. Someone had gifted it to him. They had gifted it to him. So it technically belonged to him. But again, as we know, we talked about it previously, when the Prophet ﷺ passed away, everything that he owned previously, now was basically donated to the Ummah. Right? لَا نُورَثُ مَا تَرَكْنَا صَدَقَةً Everything we leave is sadaqah. So that well became donated to the people of Medina. And even till today, it's actually a public well. And it provides water to that area around it. And there's actually a school built right next to it. And all the water in that school is from that well. So this well became donated. But it, technically before the passing of the Prophet ﷺ, it belonged to him. It was gifted to him. And from that, some of the commentators, they extract two lessons. Number one was that the Prophet ﷺ, did not want to create, did not want there to be any, even the slightest possibility of there being some rivalry or divisiveness in the aftermath of the passing of the Prophet 
Because most of the well, all the wells belong to some tribe or some family or another. And if they got water from here, then they would say, oh, the, the Prophet ﷺ's body was washed by the water from our well. Versus ours, versus ours. And this would become a rivalry. It, it had the potential to become divisive. The Prophet ﷺ concluded his affair with great unity by basically providing, ensuring that his body would be washed by the water from the well that was owned by him. Not by anyone else. Number two, the second lesson that they derive from this is the following. That there's something very beautiful that some of the scholars have written. And they say that the Prophet ﷺ, the last need, the last need that a person has, the last worldly need a person has, is the water by which their body is washed, the cloth in which they are shrouded, and the ground that they are buried in. Those are the last three needs that a person has, worldly needs. The water to wash their body, the cloth to shroud them in, and the earth to bury them in. Think about it, in our communities as well, somebody passes away, janazah arrangements have to be made. And those are the three things we got to figure out. And so, the Prophet ﷺ, even the very last of his worldly needs, it was nothing was asked of anyone. No ihsan was left, except for Abu Bakr as-Siddiq. The Prophet ﷺ said, I'm just incapable of paying him back. Allah will have to reward him on my behalf. But the last three worldly needs of the Prophet ﷺ, the water came from a well that he owned, the cloth was cloth that was owned by him, that he was shrouded in, and the ground that he was buried in was the apartment, the home of Aisha his home. And so even the final arrangements of the Prophet ﷺ, they were completely self-sufficient. So this is the washing of the body of the Prophet ﷺ. Now the, the second thing is the shrouding, the kafan, takfin, shrouding. So as I mentioned earlier, that the Prophet ﷺ was wrapped in, shrouded in three garments. Three garments. And these three garments are referred to in a number of different, excuse me, in a number of different narrations. They are referred to as suhuliya, suhuliya that they were white garments, thalathati athwabin, biyadin, suhuliyatin. What does suhuliyah mean? That they were three white garments, and the word suhuliyah refers to one of two things. Number one, that a lot of times when they would kind of pre-wash a garment, they would call it suhuliyah. The second thing is, that suhul is also the name of a town in Yemen, a village in Yemen. So a lot of times the garments that would be called suhuliya were Yemeni garments. They were Yemeni garments. So this could also be alluding to the idea that these were very fine garments or good garments, that they were from Yemen. 
And there's another narration that actually explicitly mentions that the Prophet ﷺ was shrouded in three white garments, Yamaniya, that were from Yemen, min kursuf. They were cotton garments, very simple, but nevertheless clean and, and nice white clean garments. The Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet there's, there's a fascinating narration that Imam al-Bayhaqi presents. Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha narrates that after the three garments that they had shrouded the Prophet in, there was one big sheet that they wanted to wrap around over everything. It's not necessary. He was shrouded in three garments that were complete. And then they wanted to take one last sheet and wrap him up in it, a blanket almost like. But it was deemed unnecessary. Abdullah bin Abi Bakr, the son of Abu Bakr, the brother of Aisha, Abdullah, he brought this blanket and he put it down and he said, wrap the Prophet ﷺ in this after you shrouded him. They wrapped him in it, but then they said, this is not necessary. So they opened the wrap and they said, we don't need it. So Abdullah bin Abi Bakr, he took it and he said, oh, okay, never mind. It's okay. When he took it, he basically ended up um, writing his wasiyah, saying that when I die, wrap me in this blanket, because the Prophet ﷺ was wrapped in this blanket. All right, and so this is kind of a fascinating narration that um, that basically this was one of the things that occurred when they were wrapping the body of the Prophet ﷺ. The last thing, the the third thing, excuse me, not the last thing. The third thing was the janaza of the Prophet ﷺ. The janazah prayer. We know that after washing of the body, there is the wrapping of the body, the shroud. And the third funeral rite that is offered is the salatul janazah, the funeral prayer. So there was a lot of discussion about how should we pray the janazah of the Prophet So a lot of discussion was happening at this particular time. What should we do? So it's narrated that while they were trying to figure this out, Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu presented a solution. He said, first and foremost, obviously, everybody wants to participate in the janazah of the Prophet Number two, everyone kind of wants an opportunity to be able to say their farewells to the Prophet Thirdly, there was also kind of this understanding that the funeral prayer, if we look at the, the wording of the funeral prayer, there are four takbirat. The first takbir is the praise and glorification of Allah. The second takbir is salutations upon the Prophet The third takbir is followed by a supplication for the deceased. Allahumma ghfir li hayyina wa mayitina. It's for the forgiveness of the departed. There was this understanding as well that the Prophet ﷺ is already forgiven. The Prophet ﷺ is already forgiven. So there's no prayer for his forgiveness. Furthermore, you pray for someone, you know, and, and make dua for them because they need your prayer. 
The Prophet doesn't need our prayers. We needed his prayers. So they, from this, they also understood that this prayer, if you will, of the Prophet is actually going to be more like saying salawat. On top of everything, you also add in the fact that the Prophet told them that prophets are granted a very unique type of life in the afterlife. They're not dead the way that we are. So then how do we kind of make sense of that? So they realize that our farewell to the Prophet will not be a salatul janazah, will not be praying for his forgiveness. Our farewell to the Prophet is going to be us saying salam to the Prophet Sending salawat on the Prophet Peace and blessings, salutations, durud upon the Prophet That is how we will bid farewell. So at that particular time, Abu Bakr anhu suggested the following procedure. He basically suggested that after they had washed the body of the Prophet there in the apartment of Aisha, they had dried him, then they wrapped him up in the blankets, in the, in, the, in the cloth, excuse me, in the shroud, in the sheets, and they had cleaned up the area, they then said, lay the body of the Prophet on the bed, on a bed, place a bed, sarid, and lay his body on the bed, on the sarid. And then people will be lined up outside, and 10, people or so at a time. However many can reasonably fit into the apartment of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha standing remotely. Because again, it was not a very big area. It's a very humble apartment, hujra. But 10 or 12 people, however many can stand, will be allowed in. They will come, they will stand for a few minutes. Abu Bakr and this was started by so to demonstrate it for everyone, Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Umar bin al-Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu along with him, and some more of the uh, muhajireen and the ansar, a few more people came in with Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhuma. They stood up in about a couple of lines, a few lines, as many could fit within the apartment. And then... Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu said the following words, Allahumma inna nashhadu annahu qad ballagha ma unzila ilayhi. O Allah, we testify that the Messenger of God delivered whatever was revealed to him. Wa nasaha li ummatihi. He advised his ummah, his followers. Wa jahada fi sabilillahi hatta a'azza Allahu ta'ala deenahu. He strove in the path of God until God honored and elevated his deen and religion and the word of God was completed. And people believed only and solely in Allah once again. So Allah make us amongst those people who will follow 
his message as it was revealed to him. وَجْمَعَ بَيْنَنَا وَبَيْنَهُ حَتَّى تُعَرِّفَهُ بِنَا وَتُعَرِّفُنَا بِهِ And Allah reunite us with him in such a way that he will be recognized along with us and we will be recognized along with him. That we will be together. فَإِنَّهُ كَانَ بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ رَعُوفًا رَحِيمًا that Allah, while he was with us in this world, he loved his ummah. He loved his ummah. He loved the believers. لا نبتغي بالإيمان بدلا. We will never trade our iman for anything. ولا نشتري به ثمنا أبدا. We will not sell our faith for anything. فَيَقُولُ النَّاسِ آمِينَ 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 As Abu Bakr kept saying these statements, everyone that was there kept saying, آمِينَ 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 وَيَخْرُجُونَ And then they left. وَيَدْخُلُ آخَرُونَ Another group of people entered in. حَتَّى صَلَّى الرِّجَالِ ثُمَّ النِّسَاءِ ثُمَّ الصِّبْيَانِ And in this way, all the men came in. The women were given, then there was a line of sisters, line of sahabiyat, women folk. They came in, you know, a group at a time, had the opportunity to stand there, say their salam to the Prophet ﷺ, send their salutations upon the Prophet ﷺ, bid him farewell, and then come in turn by turn. And then even the children, even the children all lined up. And the children were given the same opportunity to come and say salam and bid farewell to the Prophet ﷺ. Furthermore, this procedure sounds, when you hear it for the very first time, it sounds a little bit, you know, uh, strange, if you will. Because this is not how we normally perform janazah. But we're talking about the Messenger of Allah ﷺ. Ibn Kathir ta'ala writes, however, for anyone who is kind of puzzled by this, curious about this, he says, وَهَذَا الصَّنِيعَ وَهُوَ صَلَاتُهُمْ عَلَيْهِ فُرَادًا لَمْ يَأُوهُمْ أَحَدٌ عَلَيْهِ That this method that in which they came and they offered the janazah of the Prophet ﷺ, if you will, أَمْرٌ مُجْمَعٌ عَلَيْهِ لَا خِلَافَ فِيهِ this was something all the Sahaba agreed on. Not a single Sahabi voiced their um, reservations or contentions in regards to this. All the Sahaba were comfortable with this. And furthermore, to understand exactly the reasoning behind it, of course there are different explanations like I talked about. But the one thing everyone agreed upon was that this was the best way that was available to them to be able to say their farewells to the Prophet ﷺ. After this janazah of the Prophet ﷺ, if you will, now came the fourth part of this procedure. And that was to now lay the body of the Prophet ﷺ to rest in the ground. The one thing I should mention before I go forward is, as I mentioned earlier, 
the washing of the body of the Prophet ﷺ occurred basically on a Tuesday afternoon. Monday morning, late morning, he passed away. Monday evening, the bay'at Abu Bakr as-Siddiq ta'ala began. Tuesday, around Dhuhr time, the bay'at Abu Bakr ta'ala concluded. And he gave his inaugural address. After that, they basically started this final rites of the Prophet So this began Tuesday afternoon. The washing of the body did not take very long. The takfeen, the shrouding of the body of the Prophet did also not take very long. But this third part of the process, because everyone wanted their opportunity to say their farewell to the Prophet this took a very long time. And this basically continued from Tuesday evening, all throughout Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, Wednesday afternoon, Wednesday evening, and they finally concluded Wednesday night. Wednesday night. It finally, the lines were done. At that point in time, once the lines were done, now implementing the advice of the Prophet ﷺ, the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, now the burial should not be delayed. Once the janazah is performed, the burial should not be delayed. And that's why a small technicality, even though as we've done all throughout the series, we don't really go too deep into issues of fiqh within the series. But the small technicality is, if for whatever reason there does need to be a delay in someone's janazah for any technical reasons or anything like that, that's why it's typically recommended by the scholars that the delay should be made before the janazah prayer. Delay the janazah prayer, but try to keep as less time between the janazah prayer and the burial. So for instance, if there is some legal technicality, there's a legal issue or a safety issue that you cannot bury the person once it's dark outside. Let's say there's a logistical limitation. You cannot bury someone during nighttime. And the janazah is finally ready at asr time. But you know that after you pray the janazah, go to the graveyard, it's not gonna leave enough time to bury them and it's gonna get dark. And then we're gonna have to wait to bury the person till the morning. In that instance, the scholars actually recommend, don't pray the janazah now. Wait to pray the janazah in the morning. Pray the janazah and then bury immediately. That's where time should not be left. Between those two things. Salah and dafan, tatfin, the burial. So once they had concluded this unique procedure of janazah for the Prophet ﷺ, at this time they said now, even though it's nighttime, they had the they 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 were capable of doing this, even though it was nighttime, they said we should not delay. And so they buried the Prophet ﷺ at night. Wednesday night the Prophet ﷺ was laid to rest. The next there were two discussions now. The first discussion was, where should we bury the Prophet ﷺ? That was the first discussion. And there were a number of different thoughts and ideas. اِخْتَلَفُوا فِي مَوْضِعِ قَبْرِهِ 
فقال قائل في البقيع Many people were of the opinion we should bury the Prophet ﷺ in al-Baqi'ah, Jannat al-Baqi'ah, the graveyard of Medina that is right next to the masjid today. وَقَالَ قَائِلْ عِنْدَ مِنْبَرِهِ Let's bury the Prophet ﷺ next to the minbar, the pulpit of the Prophet ﷺ. And then we'll just block that area off. No one will ever stand there ever again. That's his spot. Where the Prophet used to lead the prayer from, let's lay him to rest there. Once again, we'll just block that area off. No one stands there ever again. Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu, of course, came once again and he said, He said, I can provide you knowledge and information about this issue directly from the Prophet ﷺ. Whenever a Prophet of God passes away, they are laid to rest and they are buried where they breathed their last where their soul departed from their body. In another narration, it's mentioned that some of the Sahaba even elaborated on this. They said, Where Allah removed His soul from His body, فَإِنَّهُ لَمْ يَقْبِذْ رُوحَهُ إِلَّا فِي مَكَانٍ طَيِّبٍ Because Allah removes the soul from the body of a prophet in a pure sacred place. In a pure and sacred place. And that is the place where they should be laid to rest. Furthermore, we also see the wisdom in this. Because, of course, there was a suggestion of al-Baqiyah, which was a logical suggestion. But some of the other suggestions which could have been you know, argued on behalf of burying him at the place of the mimbar, burying him from where he used to lead the prayer, we see that the narration, the word, the, 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 the advice of the Prophet ﷺ, the bequest of the Prophet ﷺ about burying me wherever I breathe my last, that is the decree of God, that also coincides with what the Prophet ﷺ said to his ummah, in the hadith of Bukhari narrated by Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, the Prophet said that Sami'atu Rasulullah sallallahu The Prophet said, nasara One of the things that led to the nations of the past, the people of the past being cursed by God, was they started to pray at the graves of their prophets. They started to pray at the graves of their prophets. And he said that that was a reason for the curse. And again, there's a lot of discussion and debate. We do not have 100% of course confirmation of many of the burial sites of many of the prophets. But some of the places that are believed to be 
the burial sites of many of the prophets, such as Dawood alayhi salam, that is in Jerusalem, that is in Al-Quds. You have Ibrahim alayhi salam, which is in Madinatul Khalil, in Palestine, in Hebron. Um, and some of these other sites, when you go to these particular places, you'll see there, you'll observe there, that there oftentimes is kind of like a worshipping at the grave. Right? They put their head down on the grave, they pray to the grave, they, right? And that's what the Prophet ﷺ was talking about during, on his deathbed. قالت عائشة, and that's why Ummuna Aisha, the mother of the believers Aisha radiallahu ta'ala, she said, وَلَوْلَا ذَلِكَ لَأُبْرِزَ قَبْرُهُ had, that, had the Prophet ﷺ not said that, the, the grave site of the Prophet ﷺ would have become the greatest monument anyone has ever seen. The Prophet ﷺ was fearful. He was afraid. He was worried that he did not want people to start worshipping his grave. And so that's why in the profound wisdom of Allah, and the, the, the wishes of the Prophet ﷺ were that his soul would be removed from his body within the privacy and the confines of his home. And that he would be laid to rest within there. And that it would, re, it would become closed up and sealed off to the side of the masjid. As it is till today. As it is till today. And that's why the companions of the Prophet ﷺ who know this who knew this religion better than we ever will and who loved the prophet ﷺ more than we ever could and who understood the wishes of the prophet ﷺ better than any of us what did they do at the time of umar bin al-khattab radiyallahu ta'ala they expanded the masjid forward they expanded the masjid forward so now that there would now at this because of that there would actually be a row of worshippers ahead of where the Prophet was laid to rest. And then Uthman bin Affan radiallahu ta'ala anhu, another of the Khulafa Rashidin and companions of the Prophet and son-in-law, he expanded the masjid even more forward. So that there would not only just be one row of believers. There would be multiple rows of believers in front of the resting place of the Messenger of God To always designate the fact that even because the masjid had to naturally grow, and that area of where the Prophet was laid to rest would at some point in time become kind of you know, in the middle of the masjid, but there would always be rows of believers ahead of it the Imam would stand ahead, stand ahead of it to always signify the fact that we do not pray to the grave of the Prophet We pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? To mark that fact. So that was the first issue. Where should the Prophet be laid to rest? And the answer to that was, of course, delivered by Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala directly from the Prophet that wherever he breathed his last. And that was the Hujra, the home of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. The second issue, the second issue that came up was, and this is kind of a technical issue, 
but there's something very beautiful and poetic about it. The second issue was that there were two types of graves that they used to dig at that time. One is called a shiq, all right, or a sarah, and the second is called a lahad. The difference between the two, a shiq or a sarah, is basically just a grave that is dug straight down into the ground. A grave that is dug straight down into the ground. Alright? The body is laid there. Some planks or stones or boards are put on top of the body, creating kind of a, a almost like a coffin internally. And then the dirt is poured on top. That's called a shik or a sarah. The second type of grave is called a lahad. A lahad is dug in the way where you dig downward and then you dig in, you dig sideways a little bit. You create almost like a compartment. You dig down and then off to the side, like an L. Right? That's kind of how we were taught to remember it. L for lahad. Right? So you dig down and then into the side, kind of like an L. And then that little area that you create on the inside, you place the body there, you put stones there, kind of closing off that little compartment, and then you fill that area in with dirt. These are the two types of graves. In Mecca, they used to dig the first type of grave, shiq. Why? Because the earth there is very tough. The earth there around Mecca is very tough. So they would dig straight down. In Medina, they used to dig the lahad, the L-shaped. Because the soil in Medina was more malleable, was easier, so they used to dig this L type of a grave. When the Muslims came to Medina, this issue came up. This issue came up. And the Prophet ﷺ said both are fine. And it was almost kind of a traditional thing. So because of that, the Muhajirun, the Meccan Muslims, they continued to dig the grave straight down like they did in Mecca, even though they were in Medina now, in Al-Baqiyah. And the Medinan Muslims continued to dig their graves like in that L shape. And the Prophet ﷺ said both are okay. When it came to the grave of the Prophet ﷺ, now they knew where they had to dig. They said, what kind of a grave should we dig? What kind of a grave should we dig? What is more befitting the Messenger ﷺ? Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, there were two people that usually used to dig the graves there for the Muslims in Medina. Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah used to arrange for the graves of the Muhajirun. And there was an Ansari companion who used to uh, dig the graves for the Ansar. So Abbas while some of the Sahaba were still discussing what kind of a grave should we dig, Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhu said, go get both of them. Go get both of them. Call both of them. فَأَيُّهُمَا سَبِقْ فَأَيُّهُمَا سُبِقَ تَرَكْنَاهُ He said, whoever gets here first, that's the grave that we'll dig. And it just so happened that the Ansari got there before Abu Ubaidah ibn Jarrah. The Ansari got there first. And when he walked in, they said, khalas, that's it. Dig the grave. And he started digging. He said, Bismillah. Once we started, now let's just do it. 
And the reason why I was saying that it was very beautiful and very poetic was because the grave of the Prophet ﷺ is not only in Medina, but the grave of the Prophet ﷺ was dug the way the graves of Medinan people were dug. The grave of the Prophet ﷺ was shaped like the graves of the people of Medina. Keeping his promise till the very last day that he was born in Mecca, he grew up in Mecca, he received revelation in Mecca, he struggled in Mecca. But once he made hijrah to Medina, he promised the Medinan people, I will always come home to you. I will always come home to you. I am one of you. Had I not been for Hijrah, had I not been born in Mecca, I would have been an Ansari. I am a Medinan at heart. And the grave of the Prophet ﷺ was dug as the graves of the people of Medina were dug. Till the very end, the Prophet ﷺ was loyal to the people of Medina. The last couple of things that I'll mention here is after they dug the grave of the Prophet ﷺ, and they laid his body to rest. If you've ever participated in a burial, someone has to get down in the grave to lower the body down. Respectfully. The, Abdullah ibn Abbas ta'ala says that the three people, or four people, excuse me, um, or excuse me, five people, because he mentions them separately, five people got down in the grave of the Prophet Three of them were family, Ali bin Abi Talib, Fadl bin Abbas, and Qutham ibn al-Abbas. Right? Ali bin Abi Talib and the two sons of Abbas. They got down in the grave. The, uh, the fourth person who got down in the grave had helped dig the grave. His name was Shukran. He was a freed slave. And the fifth person who got down in the grave was the one who dug the grave, Aus ibn Khawli. Aus ibn Khawli al-Ansari. He had dug the grave. So these five people got down and they laid to rest the body of the Prophet ﷺ. After the dirt was filled up in the grave, after the dirt was filled up in the grave, the narration says that Usama ibn Zayd radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he took some water and this is a practice that they would do to make sure that the dirt would not, like kind of, uh, it would not be too dusty, to make the dirt dust settle. What they would do is they would take water and they would spray it on the grave. And so they sprayed, Usama ibn Zayd sprayed the water on the grave, and then a little bit of the water that was left, this was all from the well of Ghars, a little bit of the water that was left, he kind of, he put it on the wall inside the home to cool down the walls and again settle the dust down. The last thing is that, the last two things rather, is there was a conversation that occurred later on, sometime after the passing of the Prophet ﷺ. Someone asked, who was the last person to be with the Prophet 
who was the last person to be with the Prophet So they said there were five people who got down in the grave, the five that we had named, three family members and the two who had helped dig the grave. They all got out. The last person to climb out of the grave was Qutham ibn Abbas. Qutham ibn Abbas, the cousin of the Prophet However, Mughira bin Shu'aba, who was the bodyguard of the Prophet throughout his life, when they would travel on the, on the expeditions on the Ghazwa, he would guard the Prophet Mughira bin Shu'aba has a narration, he says that when they all got out of the grave, before they started filling dirt into it, he said, I was wearing a ring. And I pretended like I was trying to scoop up dirt and throw some dirt into the grave. And on purpose, I kind of made my ring loose and I tossed it into the grave. And then I said, oh no, 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 I dropped my ring, I dropped my ring into the grave. And before anyone could say anything, he said, I jumped down into the grave to get my ring. And while I was getting my ring, I reached out with my hand and I touched the foot of the Prophet to touch him one last time. And I touched the foot of the Prophet and then I climbed out of the grave. And that's why Ibn Ishaq mentions that Mughira bin Shu'aba always used to claim that he was the last person to physically be with the Prophet Lastly and finally, um, as we had talked about previously, the Prophet was laid to rest. The home of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha was the gravesite of the Prophet When Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu passed away, he asked to be buried by the side of the Prophet Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha gave permission. She no longer lived there, but just because it was her apartment, of course it was her father, she gave permission. Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu, in the direction of the Qibla, he was laid to rest behind the Prophet ﷺ with his head in line with the chest of the Prophet ﷺ. So behind the Prophet ﷺ, a little bit back, a little bit downward behind him. He was laid to rest there. When Umar bin al-Khattab passed away, he also requested permission to be buried along with the Prophet and Abu Bakr. Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha once again gave permission. And Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu was laid to rest behind Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu. A little bit downward. So behind him, a little bit down towards his chest. And what that ended up doing was that the head of Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu is in line with the knees of the Prophet It's the Prophet Abu Bakr behind him a little bit down, and then Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu behind both of them a little bit down. So his head is in line with the knees of the Prophet behind him. When Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha was on her deathbed, someone asked her that what about you? Where would you like to be buried? And Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, she said that, bury me 
along with all my friends, right? And she was referring to all the other mothers of the believers. Bury me with all my friends in Al-Baqiyah. Bury me with all my friends in Al-Baqiyah. And so she was laid to rest in Jannat Al-Baqiyah along with the other mothers of the believers. Finally, when it comes to the gravesite of the Prophet I'm not going to get into a lot of detail here, but very briefly, for a long time, the gravesite of the Prophet was that apartment of Aisha Of course, as you would expect, it was very respected by the early believers. In the narrations of Bukhari, many of the tabi'un mention, they had the opportunity to see the resting place of the Prophet ﷺ, glance into the home of Aisha. It was not, nothing was constructed or built there. It was just like a mound of dirt, musannaman, kind of like a hump, like a mound of dirt. And that was simply what marked the grave of the Prophet ﷺ. It was not until it was not until the time of Al-Walid ibn Abdul Malik Al-Walid ibn Abdul Malik that the the walls of the apartment of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha became very weak and started to crumble and they were afraid that they were going to crumble and fall on the graves so at that time that was the first instance that four walls were built around the resting place of the Prophet what we know now as the prophetic chamber, which ended up including the home of Aisha. They ended up including within that, right behind there, the home of Fatima. And in front and inside a little bit of the area of the masjid. They took up all that area, they put four walls, they ended up putting a dome on top of it and they sealed it off. They sealed it off. From that point on forward, there's been more building and construction around it. But that area has remained basically sealed off. And no one goes in there, no one has been in there. For the sake of the sanctity of the resting place of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. We conclude here, and I wanted to mention something that is very, you know, um, it's very painful to hear. But after they laid the body of the Prophet Sallallahu to rest, Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he says, when we were returning back from the burial of the Prophet ﷺ, Fatima anha lived right behind there. And he says, when I was leaving from the burial of the Prophet ﷺ, in the middle of the night on Wednesday, Fatima anha was standing at her door. And she saw me. And she saw the dust on my hands. And she said, Ya Anas! Ya Anas! I was like a child who grew up in their home. 
أطابت أنفسكم أن تحثوا على رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم التراب you, you, you feel good about yourself you put dirt on the messenger صلى الله عليه وسلم you feel good about yourself it was a very difficult moment the gravest of tragedies but nevertheless we see that the legacy of the Prophet ﷺ suffice it to say that 1400 years later, halfway across the world, there's a group of people gathered in a room talking about the life of the Prophet ﷺ. That's the legacy of the Prophet ﷺ. That's the everlasting legacy of Rasulullah ﷺ. And that's why we're gathered here. We sit, we learn, we pray, we live our lives, we live our lives the way that he taught us to. And that's the greatest testament of love for the Prophet That's the greatest thing we can do. To carry on the work of the Prophet To carry on the message of the Prophet To remember the advice that he gave us. What did he want us to do? Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu says he could barely talk. The day before he passed away, he could barely talk. So much so that he wasn't even saying it, he was mumbling it, he was like grunting it. From inside of his throat. And what was he saying? As-salah, as-salah wa ma malakatimanu. Pray, pray. And be good to people. Don't, don't, don't take people for granted. That's the legacy of Rasulullah This effort of ours to try to study the life of the Prophet share the life of the Prophet This is a very, very humble effort to remind ourselves about what our responsibility is. To live up to his legacy, to fulfill what he asked us to do. And to try to live our lives like him. To try to share the guidance that he brought, that he sacrificed so much for. This is all in an effort to just try to be more like the Prophet May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to know the Prophet May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to love the Prophet May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to be more like the Prophet May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to spread the life of the Prophet And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to continue to learn and to study and to benefit from the life of the Prophet May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us the dignity and the honor to be called ummatis and followers of the Prophet May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the day of judgment allow us to be recognized by the Prophet May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us a place um, on the day of judgment under the shade of Allah with the Prophet May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to drink the water of the fountain of Kothar from the hands of the Prophet May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us from amongst those for whom the Prophet will intercede. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to benefit and to enjoy the company of the Prophet in the life of the hereafter. In Jannatul Firdaus al A'la, Ya Rabbul Alameen. We have a long way to go 
to do right by the Prophet and to do right by his life. But nevertheless, everything begins somewhere. Everything starts somewhere. And we should make an intention. One of our teachers who passed away, who taught us a lot about the life of the Prophet he always used to say that every single moment, every single opportunity is an opportunity. Every single moment is an opportunity. We make tawbah now. We repent to Allah now. We decide to do better from now. We will do better from now. Not even tomorrow morning, not even later tonight, from now. That when we stand and we pray to Allah now, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to guide us to be better. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to guide us to do better. Ameen ya Rabbul Alameen. Jazakumullah khairan. Um, just a very quick note. I know that there's uh, a lot of folks with us here and many of the locals that are here with us as well. But um, this is a series that we started about eight years ago. Um, almost about eight years ago. I think it was, the, it was August of 2011. And um, alhamdulillah, we continued on through. There's many folks who listen um, to the recordings afterwards uh, as well. So alhamdulillah, it's a blessing of Allah that we were able to reach this point of completion. But completion's a funny word because it gives you a sense of accomplishment. All we did was finish one round of study. But study is something that always continues. And secondly, and more importantly, what we've just started is actually living this message. And actually living in accordance with the Sunnah of the Prophet So whenever we talk about completion of things, um, I'm always very weary of it. It makes me very nervous talking about completions. Um, because I'm weary of it because I don't want to delude myself into thinking that somehow I'm done. I've achieved something. We achieve something by living. And we achieve something by finally meeting the Prophet on the Day of Judgment. That's when we've achieved something. In the meanwhile, we got a lot of work to do. So I appreciate everybody listening. And so there's, I definitely want to acknowledge that. Uh, but I do want to just share with you my own concern for myself. And that is, uh, never, we're never done. We always got work to do. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept. Jazakallah. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi, subhanakallah wa bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nasafiruka wa natubu ilayhi.